This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of December 19th, 2022, here are some top stories. The federal government is suing Arizona over a state-funded project to build a border wall of shipping containers on Forest Service land in Cochise County. The Biden administration has said the project is happening illegally on federal land, but allowed it to go on anyway. That is until a tiny pot of protesters recently brought it to a screeching halt. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. On a sunny afternoon this month, in the Coronado National Forest, half a dozen protesters beat furiously on drums as a thick curl of smoke from incense wafted into the air. Behind them, a wall of double-stacked shipping containers snaked its way across arid desert grasslands. Russ McSpadden, with the Center for Biological Diversity, says this landscape used to cross almost seamlessly into Mexico, except for a squat line of vehicle barriers and barbed wire marking the border. Now, we're on the border wall road, driving along Governor Ducey's shipping container junk pile here. Contractors hired by the state have used bulldozers to widen the road, cranes to stack the containers, and sheet metal to fill in gaps where the ground is too uneven for them to lie flat. A spool of razor wire runs atop the metal containers in some areas. It's the second of two shipping container wall projects undertaken by Arizona this year. The state earmarked some $123 million in taxpayer funds to get them done. McSpadden says the environment here will also pay a price. Waters from the Huachuca Mountains north of the border here flow south across the border and feed these really incredible wetlands. Um, And there's beavers there, almost 400 species of migratory birds. State officials have insisted the builds are needed to safeguard the border. Federal authorities have said the projects are happening illegally on federal land. But work went on unimpeded. Environmental activist Kate Scott lives less than an hour from these rolling desert grasslands. This is very, very painful for us. We love this land. It's, it's, the, it's the landscape of our soul. Last month, Scott and other locals decided to take matters into their own hands. We merely stepped into the road with the banner strung across on the road and with other people with signage. And they literally just halted, I mean, in like almost in mid-turn. And he just sat there for probably 30 minutes idling. It worked for a while, but then Scott says crews started trying to evade the protests by working in near-freezing temperatures in the middle of the night. So that was like, okay, so we have to camp. And we literally just said, who can stay? Who can bring camping equipment? They've been here ever since. Some have traveled back and forth to replenish supplies. Others have spent days in campers, even in the snow. Ari Leviso says he came because he wanted to carry on a legacy. This is the legacy that Doug Ducey's children will have to inherit. But when my children ask me what was going on, I would tell them that I was doing my best to stop it. It looks to have worked. Though the project was slated to cover about 10 miles of Forest Service land, contractors only made it across about three before protesters brought the work to a halt. The state can't remove them from the area because they're on public federal land. Activists say no container has been placed since early December. On a recent morning, a few protesters sat perched atop the last one. A few security guards were stationed in front of parked construction vehicles, but workers were nowhere to be seen. 
Further down the road, Center for Biological Diversity director Kieran Suckling was dressed from head to toe in a fuzzy jaguar costume. A thin orange blowtorch dangled from his hand. Juicy's border wall is easily crossed by humans. It's easily crossed by drug dealers. But not by big animals native to the area, he says, like mountain lions, ocelots, even the occasional jaguar. So... I'm going to make a wildlife crossing with my blowtorch. In a lawsuit filed against the project last week, the federal government called on the state to stop construction, remove existing containers, and begin environmental remediation. In response, Ducey's office said the containers were always meant to be temporary, and the state would help remove them if the federal government says when it plans to fill the border wall gaps. Incoming Arizona governor Katie Hobbs hasn't said if or how remediation and removal will happen. Suckling says he's confident she'll do away with the project, but activists will continue to monitor the site to make sure she does. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from the San Rafael Valley. In education news, a union of workers at Arizona State University and University of Arizona is petitioning the schools to pay all campus workers at least $25 an hour by 2025. But as Bridget Dowd reports, contingent faculty members are fighting for a lot more than bigger paychecks. Contingent faculty members are hired to teach at universities on a short-term contract. Those teaching full-time can receive benefits, but they're not eligible for tenure. At the end of the term, we could be non-renewed for any reason, and no reason needs to be given, and there isn't a grievance process. That's U of A senior lecturer Natalie Reed. Reed is also a member of United Campus Workers of Arizona, a union made up of both ASU and U of A employees. NAU has its own union. Reed says those non-tenured instructor spots make up about 61 percent of teaching positions at ASU and about 53 percent at U of A. Which is significant that the people who are working with especially undergraduate students most closely are hired on these short-term contracts. UCW Arizona is circulating three petitions. Two of them ask each university to pay all campus workers a base wage of $25 an hour or the salary equivalent by 2025. The third is focused on fair working conditions like paths to promotion and job security. That last piece is a growing concern for some ASU instructors. Lane Knighting used to teach at ASU's College of Integrative Sciences and Arts. After working at ASU for about 20 years, he says just days before his summer class was to begin, it was given to another instructor. I'd already corresponded with students. I'd already connected. I was flabbergasted. The dean told him there were too many sections of that course. Which I could understand if that was across the board, but it wasn't. I was the only one that that happened to. He complained to the vice provost who contacted the dean about her decision. So the dean ended up contacting me that Friday saying, fine, I'm going to go ahead and let you keep your two summer B courses. Ten days after that, I got an email saying, hey, thank you for your service. Goodbye. Knighting was allowed to teach those courses and then no longer had a contract. That was despite having good reviews and a Ph.D. Four of his colleagues also lost their jobs, all of whom had good reviews. Dave Wells teaches in the same unit and is heavily involved in university governance, serving on the school's Senate since 2013. 
He's worked for ASU for 25 years and says in all his time with the school, he's only seen two instructors in his unit not be renewed, and those were due to behavioral issues or ethical violations. We've never had anybody performing on a, on a meritorious basis who had not been renewed. And to have five people um, have that happen to them and then not being notified until June 1st after the academic year was appalling. Wells says the policy for that isn't written well, but typically instructors who don't get renewed are notified by March 1st, so they have time to look for another job. So I help organize an emergency meeting of our faculty group to put forward a resolution of telling the dean that she needed to rescind these actions. The resolution passed this summer, but Wells says college dean Joanna Grabsky refused, claiming they were overstaffed. Wells says class sizes swelled and students weren't well served. The department also continues to provide overload contracts, paying some instructors more to teach an extra class. He says instructors in other parts of the university lost their contracts as well and were treated in a similar manner. KJZZ asked for a comment from Grabsky and received a response saying the matters were confidential. Responding to another request about the petitions, ASU spokesperson Veronica Sanchez said a decision to not renew is rare and made carefully. She also pointed to a living wage adjustment that increased minimum salaries for about half of full-time career track faculty and an increase in the number of faculty who will be eligible for multi-year contracts instead of just one-year contracts. U of A spokesperson Pam Scott said in an email, the school is working to raise pay and is ahead of Tucson's promise to bump minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025. UCW Arizona wants at least 1,000 signatures before delivering the wage petitions to the school presidents and their governing body. Reed says so far they've gathered more than 800. Our working conditions are the students' learning conditions. And when students are getting less than they deserve, that is definitely a problem for our universities. She says they'll continue to make noise until their requests are taken seriously. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news... A deal to sell the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury is now pending approval from the NBA. As Greg Haney reports, a Michigan mortgage lender is on track to becoming the next majority stakeholder. Matt Ishbia, the CEO of United Wholesale Mortgage, is in the process of buying the Suns and Mercury from embattled majority owner Robert Sarver. According to reports, the deal would be a record-breaking $4 billion. That is nearly 10 times the amount that Sarver purchased the teams for in 2004. In a statement, Sarver said Ishbia is the right leader to take the two teams into the next era, citing his philanthropic outlook and support for women's basketball. The deal could take several weeks to finalize. According to Forbes, Matt Ishbia is worth more than $5 billion. Greg Hani, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. What your holiday gift giving says about you. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. Finding just the right present can be really stressful. And as it turns out, we may not actually be all that good at finding just the right thing for someone else anyway. Anna Goldfarb writes about this in an article in The Atlantic called Gift Giving is About the Buyer, Not the Receiver. She spoke with my co-host Mark Brody more about this, beginning with how much of gift giving is about psychology and how much is other stuff. I would say it's pretty much entirely psychology with maybe a teeny bit of budget in there it's Ah. sort of where psychology meets budget and it's the it's the psychology of the gift giver sort of colliding with the psychology of the gift receiver and then 
anytime you have people guessing about what another person might want or desire, a lot of uh, hijinks can ensue. A lot of pickles <laughs> can be had. <laughs> um, it's definitely an art. And I think most people don't appreciate how complex of a transaction it is. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that you write about that was particularly interesting is that a lot of folks believe that when we give a gift to somebody, it says more about us as the giver than it does about the person who's receiving that gift. Yeah, that's that's something that we don't think about. It's almost like a fish thinking about the water they're in because <laughs> you don't think about the messages you're trying to send with the present, even though from an outsider's perspective, that's clearly what's happening. You are sending a message with the present you select. It's, mm -hmm. I'm a thoughtful person. I'm thinking of your needs. I'm thinking about our relationship. I'm thinking about how meaningful this is. Um, there's a lot of messages that people can send with presents they choose. And of course, it's not the same across the board. The, the present you give to a coworker on a white elephant party is not the same as, you know, your spouse or, you know, a relative or a child. Like right. they're all different, but they all have that undercurrent of sending a message of what our relationship is to each other and what I, as a gift giver, am guessing that you would like as the gift receiver. Are those messages always conscious on the gift giver's part? Like, is it possible that, you know, sometimes you give somebody something and maybe they interpret a message that wasn't intended? Oh, yeah. I think that wires get crossed all the time. Um, you especially can see this with registries or bridal registries of people going off registry. And they're saying, I think I know what you need as the bride or groom more than what you do. I don't think people are conscious that they're sending that message. I think they're so secure in it. Like, listen, you're going to want, you're going to love these tickets to the opera I'm gifting you. And then to the receiver, it's like, well, now I got to plan a whole day around the opera. There's parking. Like, what am I going to wear? I don't have shoes. Like it's, it's the experience of receiving the gift isn't the same as the experience gifting the present. Um, and that's where a lot of wires can get crossed. Hmm. And actually, we saw this in the research of gift givers love a reaction provoking gift. They love that wow worthy, like shock that what? How did you get this? How did you you know, they love that reaction. Um, but gift receivers much prefer something useful, versatile, something that will be a pleasure to own or experience. Um, and a lot of times those two conflicting motivations are at odds with each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, doesn't that sort of mean that the perfect gift is something that will generate the reaction that the giver wants, that is also something that the receiver really wants and needs. So like if the receiver, you know, needs, I don't know, a new shirt or something, that might not yeah. be what the giver wants to give. But if they know that that's going to evoke the reaction, does that become the perfect gift? I think, you know, the... The, the perfect gift to give isn't necessarily the perfect gift to receive. And that's where the tension is. Mm. Um, you know, I think of couples saying like, we want money for our honeymoon. I know we're in the holidays and some people just would prefer cash or gift cards. 
But other people who are gift givers are like, well, it's not fun for me to get you a gift card to Sephora. I'd rather pick something out that I think that you would like or, you know, something I loved and I want you to try it so that you'll love it. And those are the other um, unconscious processes or justifications going on. Um, I think people want to have fun giving gifts. A lot of people I talked to for this article have said gift giving is my love language. I love Mm. picking out a gift. I love finding the thing that they didn't even know they wanted. And in my experience talking to these sources, they seem to really resist the idea of like, well, what if your gift gift receiver just wants cash or just wants a gift card? And some of my sources were like, well, I don't give cash. I refuse. I'm not a gift card person. That's absolutely off limits. And my hope with this article is people will maybe tweak their thinking about presents and try to think a little deeper about it's not just what I want to experience. It's really about the receiver and how can I make them feel heard or validated? Well, but isn't there also the issue with money or gift cards of like the gift receiver knowing exactly what you spent on them. Like if you give them something, Mm -hmm. sure, they can find out, but they've got to do a little bit of research to figure out. If I give you a check or I give you a gift card, you know exactly monetarily how much I value our relationship. Well, I think that's a miscalculation gift givers assume. From talking to my researchers, they said that to a gift receiver, it's the thought that counts. Generally speaking, it's they're not paying attention to how much you spend. It's more just like this nice you thought of me. They, they could sort of just roll with it. But I think the gift giver internalizes that as a message that they're sending of, oh, I only spent $50 on you. So you mentioned the phrase, it's the thought that counts. And I'm wondering, based mm-hmm. on your research, how, how true is that actually? I think it's very true for recipients. I think, you know... I, I mean, it's it's hard to generalize because gift giving is like so, you know, complex and nuanced. Right. But I think generally speaking, recipients are just like, it's the thought that counts. And I think as gift givers, it's what thought did you follow? So is the answer as simple as the gift givers should just ask the recipients what they would like? Like, is it really just that simple? I think... If you're looking for answers, I would say that is the way to go. And I have I have actually included that in my own family this holiday season after writing this article. I said, just give me a list. The budget's $50. Like, tell me what you want and I will get it for you. And that was a big hit. People had a lot of fun coming up with something. And it saves us it saves us the guessing game of like, let me spend energy trying to figure out what you want without you even knowing it. Like when you look at it through that lens, it just seems like, whoa, that's a waste of time. It really is synthesizing this information of what is, what does the gift receiver want? And that may look different than what you want to give them. And I think it's okay to sit with that discomfort for a bit. All right. Anna Goldfarb, thank you so much for the conversation and uh, good luck with all your gift giving this holiday season. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mark. I really enjoyed our conversation. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news, Phoenix Children's Hospital reports it has seen a number of invasive Group A strep infections since early November. These infections have recently been seen in Europe, and the CDC is looking into a possible increase in the U.S. Catherine Davis-Young has more. 
Invasive group A strep comes from the same bacteria that causes strep throat, but infections can be much more severe, causing pneumonia or sepsis. Two children in Colorado recently died from the infection. Dr. Wasim Balan with Phoenix Children's Hospital says infections are still rare, but they do appear to be on the rise in Arizona. It seems like it's happening in a cluster. We don't know yet how the situation is going to escalate, but the number of patients that we've seen so far is definitely higher than any other years. At least in recent memory. RSV, flu, and COVID-19 are also still circulating. Balan says group A strep can develop as a complication from a respiratory virus, so he recommends parents keep their kids up to date on flu and COVID vaccines and watch for any worsening symptoms after a cold. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Fronteras News. A new lawsuit seeks to force the United States to reach a decision on a 2014 petition that requested sanctions against Mexico for not adequately protecting an endangered porpoise in the upper Gulf of California. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust reports. It's been eight years since the petition was filed, requesting a ban on seafood imports from Mexico because of its failure to stop illegal fishing that has led to the near extinction of the vaquita marina porpoise. In that time, the vaquita's population has dipped from 97 to just 10, and with no response from the government, conservation groups are now suing the Interior Department to make the decision to sanction Mexico. We can choose to save this species, this very specific species, or we can choose to let them go extinct. Zach Smith with the Natural Resources Defense Council says the few remaining vaquita are healthy and could recover if gillnet poaching in their habitat is stopped. Mexico's failure to end illegal fishing is a violation of the country's international commitments, Smith says, and the U.S. has an obligation to economically pressure Mexico to action. Kendall Blust, KJZZ News, Emocio. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. Have a wonderful holiday season, and I wish you a peaceful new year. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.